The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to A16Z Bio's Clubhouse Room, where we cover lots of topics related to the future of bio and healthcare in a loosely structured debate. Uh, I'm Vinita, one of the partners here at Andreessen Horowitz, and with me tonight are my colleagues, as well as a group of really amazing healthcare and data leaders who I'm honored to have joining us. Atul Butte, director of the Bakar Computational Health Sciences Institute at UCSF, trained pediatrician and founder of three data-driven startups in the biotech space. Terry Meyerson, CEO of Truveta, a new startup which recently has brought together over a dozen health systems with a very novel data sharing platform, and Suchi Saria, director of the ML and healthcare lab at Johns Hopkins, and founder and CEO of a company called Bayesian Health, um, which will be launching publicly very soon, and Gaurav Singhal, um, previously chief data officer at Foundation Medicine, currently a, a very active startup advisor to a wide range of companies leveraging real-world data. And so appropriate to this group, what we'd like to discuss today is using real-world data to create real value for patients. We'll explore the utility of this data. I'd like to pull out some concrete examples of both success as well as difficulty in translating this data into applications in both care delivery as well as, you know, outside of care delivery applications like biopharma research. I'd like to just start by going around the horn and asking everybody to say a few words about what you're currently building with respect to real-world data, just so our listeners can learn a little bit about your backgrounds and, and where you're coming from. So maybe I'll start with you, Terry. Okay, thanks. You know, Trevetta is a company that was really, you know, born out of the experience in the pandemic. In spring of last year, what, what I saw was that there was a whole variety of questions that could not be asked and answered. You know, does hydroxychloroquine work? Does remdesivir work? Uh, is a loss of sense of taste or sense of smell indicative of this disease? Do we have enough data to look for these signals? And then a variety of health systems tried to put their data together to do, so their data scientists could collaborate. And that was too hard to do. It was too hard to do from a regulatory standpoint. It was too hard to do technically uh, without a significantly major investment. And, you know, the, the pandemic created this moral imperative that bringing together a basically a statistically significant representative of, you know, U.S. clinical care was necessary so we could start asking and answering many questions. And so that's what we're doing. We have, you know, we've shared just 14 health systems that are a part of Truveta and they're sharing uh, their data with Truveta. You know, we de-identify it, we structure it, we normalize it, and then make it available for ethical research. Great. Super interesting. And uh, congrats on wrangling together greater than one health system. I'll yeah. Turn to um, to a tool. Excellent. Uh, so we've been uh, building out our infrastructure in the University of California for the past six, almost seven years. We have this umbrella organization across our six academic health centers, and we have this aspiration within five to ten years to build a single accountable care organization for the University of California. Uh, we are fed all this data. Uh, we were happy with every month, and then COVID happened, so we were getting all COVID data every day, and now we're settling on every other week for all data moving centrally. Uh, we have about 7 million patients in there uh, with data over the last nine years, a lot of longitudinal data. We've used it a lot uh, to improve the practice of medicine, to save money, and to generally improve the patient experience. Awesome. Thank you, Atul. Suchi? So if you think about care delivery today, 
like physicians practice today the way we used to practice 50 years ago, 100 years ago. For the most part, the use of real-world data or real-time data is not really incorporated in sort of any in-depth way beyond patient coming in, you hear what their symptoms are, you think through it in your head, you mull it over, you do a few clicks on the EMR to try to pull up what is easily accessible, and then you make some kind of an assessment of where this patient's headed. There's opportunity to stitch together data from this encounter, past encounters, to build together a longitudinal record, and then use high-quality algorithmic tools to be able to pull inferences that could inform both where this patient's headed, you know, things they're at risk for, uh, events that may be happening in the future that you could prevent. And so over the last 10 years, most of my work, both through my our center at Hopkins, my work at Bayesian, and also most recently my work with the FDA, has been on one, like how do you actually build MLAI tools that can draw safe, reliable inferences from this kind of messy, biased, real-world data sets Two, how do you do high-quality evaluations, whether you're evaluating real-time tools or you're doing any kind of uh, comparative analysis, you need the ability to deal with the messiness of the data. And three, how do you integrate these real-time inferences within workflow so that there's an opportunity to really create next-generation infrastructure where the care delivery uh, folks like providers are integrating algorithmic output as part of their decision-making process. Awesome. I love it. You've been in the thick of developing a set of applications for clinical decision support and to actually improve point-of-care care delivery. Most physicians have the experience of, of having a lot of ANIC data, but not um, ready access to that type of data for decision-making. Hmm. Finally, last but not least, uh, Gaurav, you've been thinking about applications outside of, of direct care delivery as well. So I'd love for folks to hear your background. Yeah, briefly, I spent the last seven years at Foundation Medicine, and to Atul's point, you know, AMCs have historically had trouble sort of getting data together in bulk. You know, Foundation Medicine was when I joined and still when I left, um, sequencing more cancer patients every week than every academic medical center combined. So by virtue of being that central hub, we had sort of more real-world genomic data um, than every academic medical center put together, at least in, in oncology. I spent a lot of my time there linking that to clinical data with partners at Flatiron Health, including Vinita, uh, linking it to digital pathology data, linking it even to bank samples. And the idea was that we were going to build, and we did build, a sort of full data stack to drive uh, research and discovery in oncology. Um, I also spent some time trying to build clinical decision support using real-world data. And, uh, you know, the point of this is to debate, so I'll throw grenade number one out there, which is that I'm not sure that clinical decision support from real-world data is possible. Controversial point number two is that I think diagnostic companies might be sort of the AMCs of the future. And I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek, but from the standpoint of being data integrators, there's a lot of really amazing things you can do when you have a diagnostic hub um, like Foundation Medicine and many others that uh, are de facto integrators of data across diverse health systems. Awesome. Can't wait to unpack those. Let me, let me start by framing a debate just one level higher than those, and then we'll come back. I promise we will get back to those. How valuable do you think real-world data is? Is it living up to the hype, or is it still, you know, has it been net-net harder to realize the value? I can go first. We clearly see value in real-world data. But I think we got to think broadly uh, what the uses could be. So obviously, uh, a lot of us think about research projects, right, whether it's 
our own internal research projects or sponsored research for pharmaceutical biotech companies. And there's, you know, you could put a dollar amount on sponsor, sponsored research grants and things like that. But I think what I've been surprised by is just our internal use of, of real world data, in our particular case, clinical data, let's say from our electronic health records. Uh, one quick example, um, all of a sudden we can start to count how many exact patients get a dose of everything. Um, and you know what, UCLA uses this particular monoclonal antibody, for example, and UCSF uses that monoclonal antibody. Well, which is the better one to use? Well, it's finally in our interest to do the comparative effect in this studies and not just to write a paper about it, but let's then go buy the one that we think is the best from our real world data and maybe even get some cost savings on that and pass that on to patients. I mean, so that's really thinking broadly about what is in the electronic health record. It is literally the legal record of every single thing we do and measure on millions of patients. How could it not be valuable? Um, if you can share, is that is that a type of decision you've already been able to action on the basis yes. of your own retrospective data analysis, like your own purchasing decisions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we, we've saved millions. One great example is, uh, it's a random drug called IV acetaminophen. Everyone knows acetaminophen or Tylenol. And, you know, it's a fraction of a penny per pill, but the IV form is 40 or $50 per dose. Now, look, there might be legitimate reasons to use IV acetaminophen if you're trying to avoid opioids, maybe it's a pediatric patient, and especially use IV drugs when you can't take anything by mouth. So maybe around a surgery or a procedure. But then why do we have so many of our docs and folks using IV acetaminophen surrounded by other oral drugs? Well, if they can take other meds uh, in the hospital by in a tablet or a pill, why can't they take the Tylenol, right? So this has been a massive UC-wide effort. We know every single name of every single doctor and nurse practitioner writing every single order on every drug, right? And you have the master list of everyone who's using the drug appropriately or inappropriately. You can start to make some calls and make some changes. That resonates very much with me. I mean, Benito, when I heard you ask like two questions there, I heard you say, you know, is this data valuable? And secondly, has all the value or has, is the value being captured? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And at least from a, is the data valuable? You know, the scenarios that, you know, the comparative effectiveness, the safety research, the off-label drug research, the just care pathway optimizations. There's just so many things that can and should be optimized with data. And they're generally not today. And to say, you know, is the data valuable? I think we can all conceive just endless scenarios where it's incredibly valued to be making data-driven decisions about how to take care of patients, and but, think, you know, is the is the data being monetized in all the way, or is the is, is all, the cost savings being captured? I think that they were very immature on that front. I think to build on Terry's point, the data is definitely valuable. The thing that's been really, really hard was early on, people thought, now that we have this data, it should be easy. We can do anything we want with it. Over the last four, five, six, seven years, what people have discovered is this data is actually a lot harder than it looks, and to do well, you need new tools that can really think hard about all of the messiness, the bias. But I think that's where there's enormous opportunity and done right, you know, will come to bear, I, I think, in healthcare. Um, so, you know, when I came to Foundation Medicine, we linked the data with Flatiron. To me, it felt like there were two screaming use cases. The first was sort of discovery, especially off-label, you know, um, use of targeted therapies in oncology. Um, the second sort of screaming use case was clinical decision support. Ambitions on both of those were tempered by a couple of observations. Number one, at the end of the day, real-world data, for the most part, shows you standard of care treatments and standard of care diagnostic. But in the, in the targeted therapy world, for example, nobody was getting 
um, approval for off-label targeted therapies for the most part. And so there wasn't much in that data set to go off of for, um, for off-label discovery. Of course, that's different in different conditions. You know, oncology, we have these targeted drugs, right, that allegedly work on mechanism X with, you know, w- with a particular mutation. And so they're approved in labels for one condition or, or mm-hmm. a couple conditions, but not most conditions. The, the dream, at least for me, was, well, once we get all this real-world data, we're going to start seeing where these drugs were used for those mutations in other tumor types, and then we can prove that they work. The problem was not many patients were getting them outside of the approved tumor types, oh. um, and so we were limited by, at the end of the day, what, what sort of natural experiments were being done in the real world. With all of that said, I think there are real applications that um, that are here today, and one of those is trial design. Lots of pharma companies are using real-world data to figure out how their control group is likely to perform so they can um, they can optimize the the size of the trial and their expected effect and all those other things. Um, and then the other two places I think it's really interesting is in the computational diagnostic world. Um, one is prognostic. So if you can build risk models for outcome, uh, I, that can be done in a non-randomized setting. And I think there's tons of interesting applications for that. And then also discovering latent disease. That's being done with digital pathology. It's being done with EKGs. And I think that's another great application for real-world data that um, that is still nascent. Yeah, could not agree more. And um, <clears throat> actually, I'm not sure, Gaurav, if you're aware of a specific targeted therapy label expansion that was driven primarily by real-world data. But certainly, you know, one, one prominent example is CDK inhibitor palbociclib, which um, did get a label expansion for uh, use as a breast cancer therapy in men with breast cancer from the original label, uh, which only applied to women. So just just to note every clinical trial is still going through EPIC. So trial data essentially is captured in electronic health record too. It does take talent and tools to get this to work in a homegrown setup. I don't see everyone being able to do this at all, but we barely even have the tools. I mean, we can't, there's something that you can really buy to make this easy. I think the the analogy here is every household building their own self-driving car. I mean, everybody understands building your own self-driving car is a terrible idea. You're going to get crash and burn. The only difference here is it's much more obvious with a self-driving car when you crash and burn, you're going to die. But with algorithms on the electronic health record or algorithms with clinical data, when you're failing is far less obvious. Like high quality evaluations are necessary in order to understand if something is working and evaluations themselves require expertise. And, you know, there's been a sequence of articles today all on evaluations of well-known algorithms, you know, widely deployed uh, nationally through EPIC. And, you know, several years later, the first set of evaluation studies coming out showing that actually these don't really work. And there are certain scenarios where the data just doesn't have enough support in the data. Like there aren't enough cases of a particular type for you to draw any valid conclusions. So you have to know when you can do something and when you can't do something. And a common way in which people screw up is when they try to overstate, like they think they can answer a question which cannot be answered from data. A second scenario is you can answer it if you could somehow do all the right corrections, but doing that often well is what's hard, including correcting for, you know, like in randomization, a lot of that naturally is easily done for you. With observational data, you have to work harder to think about all the ways in which you could have screwed up and whether you've corrected corrected for it properly or not. If I could um, build on what Suchi said, you know, at Trivetta, one of the things we're seeing is that the there's there's so much advantages to scale. There's some great large health systems that are part of Trivetta, and you know, 
it, it, there's sometimes within each system, there's not enough records with signal or not enough examples of an off-label use or a device uh, being used. But it's, it's pretty incredible. I mean, it's a nonlinear effect when you start putting together several of these systems together and it allows you to see things you hadn't seen before. And then you get sort of, you also get some of the economies of scale where I think it's, it's like internet search, I think in many ways, both in terms of investing in the tools and technologies that go across, you know, one time across all systems, but also, you know, finding those needles in a haystack that wouldn't be there within any one individual system. How do we avoid reinventing the wheel within every organization? Truveta, it sounds like you're going to build some of that shared infrastructure for, for a, a dozen or more health systems over time. Um, a tool, your team is building this across the entire UC system. These are all formidable data sets. And yet it seems like we might be tumbling towards a situation where a similar analysis stack gets built many times over. I think we're already there. I mean, Trevenda is great. There's also inference that Mayo's been trying to roll out. So I think we're already there. And uh, I think we'll get to more robust models when models are tested uh, on one and uh, or train on one and test it on another. Uh, you can imagine, uh, leave one network out cross-validation, right? We have leave one academic health center cross-validation within our UC system right now, which is just stunning if you think about it. So I think we're going to get to more robust models that really have to pass several of these. I don't see us getting to one single database with everyone's clinical data, especially when I say clinical data, I mean EHR data. I think we could get there on the claims data side, but on the EHR data side, I don't think we're necessarily going to get to a single one in the end. I think um, there are pieces of the stack that would be great to be common. And the one that comes to my mind is the sort of abstraction and curation piece. And, and part of this I'm reflecting on, uh, again, the experience working with Flatiron Health, where you know, one of the things that I think was Flatiron Secret Sauce is an incredibly robust, you know, incredibly detailed engineered, QC'd up and down the chain ability to go through each record and in the same way reliably produce the same result with, you know, double abstracting a subset of records and having inner observer variability uh, assessments and, you know, documenting that and trainings and, you know, the level of professionalism around that process. That feels to me like a hidden piece of the layers here that, um, that if if that could be offered as a service across the um, ecosystem, it's also the place that I think people will recognize is just so hard to build individually that as soon as there's a light shown on it and there's some scrutiny on it, uh, my hope is that that piece of the stack will consolidate. Um, and if that happens, it feels like the other pieces, even if you build them separately, probably isn't a huge deal. My sense is just sort of the ability to stitch data together and make larger repositories available is something that is now getting commoditized, basically. Like, so if someone wanted to go and buy, you know, data, the identified data or identified data for like 100,000 people of this type, that's very doable now. The part that is uh, very not commoditized at the moment is how do you take the the data itself and draw any higher level inferences from it for a whole collection of real world applications, whether it's computational diagnostics or real time inferencing or, or clinical trial recruitment or any of that. So I think that second part of the stack is where my guess is, you know, there'll be a collection of companies each specializing in specific types of real world applications and they'll be, build platforms that are very good at end-to-end -end stacks for delivering those kinds of real-world use cases. And Suchi, where do you think 
do you think, where do you think they're going to get the data? data? So, for, for example, in my experience and some of the kinds of work we've been doing, it's a combination of like, you know, interoperability has meant lots of APIs are now available for stitching together real-time data, some from the EMR vendors themselves and others from other data aggregators who are part of, who are, you know, now available as resource for companies to integrate with to get longitudinal data on patients for care delivery applications, for example. So my sense is there are some companies already that will continue to be more companies that will make the availability of data problem go away. However, that still doesn't solve the piece where we can have the data. What are we going to do with it to create value? I'm curious if we could talk a little bit about the clinical decision support debate that Gorham framed, which another way to frame it is to think about it as a timing issue, as in how quickly do you need to be able to digest, analyze, and act upon a particular real-world data set. And I view clinical decision support with some exceptions as you know, higher on the acuity of decision-making and, and time sensitivity of decision-making all the way through to you know, maybe a purchasing decision of the kind that you described, a tool for IV Tylenol. You might, you might have a quarter to get to that conclusion or a year to get to that right. conclusion and, and do just fine. Look, I, I just tweeted out an example in New England Journal of Medicine that came out a couple months ago. Using uh, electronic health record data, Kaiser uh, North from the California Research. Uh, so they created an intervention program with alerts uh, for you know, in-hospital deterioration of patients, like including with sepsis. And you know, they, did their, they did an actual trial. And uh, what they showed is in the group of patients that got the intervention, meaning the alert, that mortality within 30 days is lower. I mean, that's an incredible comparison and a bar to cross, which obviously got them in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, uh, they had half a million non-ICU hospitalizations. So, you know, 326,000 patients went into the modeling uh, and the trial. So that's what it's going to take. I mean, large health systems like ours, like Kaiser and others are going to uh, be able to do this. You can't do this with one hospital or another, and you're going to need agglomerations of centers to try and to put the data together. But I think it can get there. Now, what's the reality? Those clinical decision support itself isn't huge yet in medicine. You don't have that many docs and nurse practitioners using tools uh, in Epic or elsewhere. So there's only a few examples here or there. But one thing I will just throw out as a zinger is I think a completely green field that hasn't even been approached yet is patient-facing clinical decision support, right? So we got all the, our, our medical records now in fire format and Apple Health and Common Health and all the rest of these. You know, where's the decision support for patients on what to do next? using all that medical record data. I don't even think that's been tapped into yet. I think our hospital record and clinical data is gonna help us tell the right answer. But I think patient-facing decision support is brand new and so it's got a long way to go. My sense, Atul, is because the data is so messy, it requires interpretation by another expert to really safely use inferences reliably today. So near term, very likely, our best bet is to identify application areas where there's some person of the care team that is with expertise and experience who can be part of the decision-making process. And then obviously, as more and more of these tools get used in practice, we'll get more and more validations. I think there is a distinction in all the examples that you guys are giving, correct me if, if you disagree, but between applying a real-world data-trained algorithm in real time, let's say in the case of the inpatient deterioration example, versus in real time getting the real-world data-driven insight 
for example, if you had a you had a, a patient experiencing a rare complication and in real time you wanted to survey survey your data to to get a new model right then and there, that might decide that might help you predict and prognosticate different outcomes along different treatment regimes. My my take on this particular debate is that it feels particularly hard and may not be possible. So do you mean, Vanita, like on the fly for a given patient, there's a system out there that just decides what models do I need to learn, learn them, and then show the results real time yeah. to a patient yeah. or that provider? That harder than taking a specific patient's instance of patient-specific data and putting that into a framework or a model that you've previously built and tested and validated. I'm not sure if this is the scenario you're describing, Finita, but the idea that at that point of care, it's a, you're searching for other patients like this. You're taking mm-hmm. the many millions of dimensions which define an individual medical record and searching a universe of medical records to look for cohorts of patients like this one and what decisions might have been made, what side effects from those choices, what outcomes. That, that's a very complex and hard problem, but it is technically conceivable. You know, there's a spectrum of definitiveness, right? And I think this is where, you know, there will be edge cases. And by the way, this happened all the time at Foundation Medicine, right? Anybody who's a doc has been in the situation, which is, you know, you can sit on your high horse and tell me about sort of standards of evidence. At the end of the day, I've got a patient in front of me and I need to make a decision, right, with the best available information I have. So um, I absolutely think there's a place for using this type of a system for edge cases, again, because the, the, the alternative is quite limited. How about this? I'll agree with Gaurav, actually. So he said CDS is uh, very hard to do. And then Benita defined CDS in a very specific way, which is on the fly, using data to generate real-time models or inferences for specific patients. I don't believe in the next five years, unless there are very, very specific set of use cases that have been premeditated, that are very low risk, my guess is that won't be feasible. And the reason I think it won't be feasible is because even in scenarios where you spend a lot of time cleaning up the data, training models offline, to actually evaluate whether those models are safe, working, you know, effective, takes a lot of energy. So the fact that on the fly, a system could automatically learn, uh, learn something and make it available to a provider and it would just be safe, effective is very, very unlikely. All right. We've been talking a lot about the use of real world data to do diagnosing better, prognosticating better, predicting X, Y, or Z, figuring out whether or not this patient is in the population who should receive X, Y, or Z. So I want to frame up again another debate, Gaurav, that you highlighted at the beginning of the call of the conversation, which was around the idea of whether the diagnostics company might be the next generation AMC. And I and I'll phrase what I think you you meant by that, which is is it the case that really a lot of the superpower within a specialized academic medical center was the ability to to diagnose and treat kind of in aggregate cases that were otherwise hard to aggregate and and could it be the case that you know you could democratize that most effectively through a diagnostics vehicle, whether that be a digital diagnostic or a laboratory diagnostic. But in the case of a digital, maybe it's a diagnostic that leverages real-world data generated nationwide. And maybe just to refine the comment, um, one of the things that struck me about the healthcare system in the U.S. is it's so fragmented across institutional lines, as Terry and Atul have pointed out, 
to me, it feels like there are maybe non-traditional nodes in the system that do integrate. And again, this was sort of my lived experience at Foundation Medicine, where by virtue of providing sequencing for half the oncologists in the country, right, we ended up being the de facto integrator of genomic sequencing results for far more than any institutional network or system could do independently. So, you know, from that perspective, are there sort of non-traditional folks that we might think about, diagnostics being an example, who certainly aren't going to replace the AMCs, but could serve that role of aggregating and integrating data for research, um, at least in the niche that they occupy. Agarab, to be fair, though, I mean, so it was a combination of Flatiron and Foundation Medicine that really uh, provided more than the sum of the parts, right? So, um, yes, uh, cancer patients get sequenced, but not all of them. It's still a, a small fraction. That could be an hour-long discussion by itself. So it's the uh, real-world data and the electronic health record data from the Flatiron side plus some molecular data really is a killer advantage there. Uh, and yes, care is fragmented, right? Because we seemingly like it that way, right? We like a competitive healthcare system in the United States. And that to me is the biggest inhibitor to bulk data sharing uh, across uh, health systems. Um, but is a diagnostic company going to be the next uh, uh, academic medical center? I think it's, it was a combination of Foundation Medicine plus Flatiron with the records that makes a difference, right? A diagnostic company might just get the uh, peri-testing care, right? The, maybe a chief complaint and why are you ordering this test? Uh, remember, when we get that result back from a testing company, we don't keep telling the testing company what we're doing with that patient, what's working and not working. That data is elsewhere. So uh, it's still limited what a company can get. Flatiron happened to get it because they were also getting the electronic health record side of it too. So you're going to need both sides of it. I don't think a diagnostic company by itself could do it. Uh, totally. So I, so I totally agree. It's not the diagnostic um, data alone. It has to be linked to clinical data to be valuable. And, and the Flatiron example, I think, is a perfect exemplar of that. The interesting thing is that there, there are lots of ways to pull in the clinical data, especially if the patient's in the loop, right? And more and more patients seem to be willing to engage in research, whether it's through 23andMe or any number of other diagnostic providers. Some diagnostic yes. providers are intentionally getting consent um, upfront as part of the sort of ordering process. And, and so you could imagine a patient-directed flow that also gets to clinical data without having to have a sort of large-scale integration like Flatiron. So I guess my only point was at least to consolidate genomic results or, or other diagnostic results, maybe diagnostic companies are the nodes, and if they could then pull in clinical data through one of any number of mechanisms, that could at least be a powerful alternative or complement to um, other approaches. Is that what is going to define the core competency of an AMC? And is it really, is it the diagnostic layer and the ability to perform a complex diagnosis that may even today, to some extent, define the, the special care delivery available at an AMC? And in the future, will that increasingly be based on data? Yeah. So look, I represent a care provider here, right? So, and I'm going to project maybe 10 years in the future. I think we're going to use a lot of real world data to figure out all these natural experiments. We're going to learn what are the right ones and the wrong ones? What are the best ways? Comparative effectiveness, not just against diagnostics with each other's and drugs, but also care pathways against each other. And we're going to teach hospitals how to use all that. So I think what's going to distinguish an academic medical center of the future is actually something completely different. And that is, you know, pushing the edge of therapies, clinical trials. Uh, I think that's what's going to distinguish a Stanford and UCSF from hospitals that aren't at that level. I agree yeah. with the tool. I think data is going to democratize a lot of the ability to, you know, see we got to get the best care anywhere in the country or the world. I think an AMC will still be an AMC on the basis of care delivery and willingness to experiment with novel therapies 
and actually handle what patient care looks like in the context of those novel therapies. That's hard. That's unknown. That takes time. That takes research infrastructure. But I do think I do think there's some degree of democratization that can happen if all the initiatives of the kind that we've talked about tonight materialize to create a wave of digital diagnostics such that health systems and AMCs do band together to create learning that can permeate everywhere else, you know, in the format of risk scores and clinical decision support tools that are next generation um, sophisticated compared to, to the ones we use today on MD Calc. Absolutely agree. But I think the power of branding is also going to be important. You know, is your uh, local community hospital powered by Harvard AI or UC AI or Stanford AI? I will say, Atul, your point really resonates with me is that, you know, AMCs for years, if you think about the role they played in drug development too, right? A huge part of that was being the investigator and figuring out what really works. To me, that's an, that's an under, still for some reason, underappreciated role, I feel like in this sort of computational era. And maybe it's what Suchi was saying that, you know, it's obvious that doing drug development is a really, really hard thing to do. And, and maybe the same level of gravity is not placed on algorithm development, which is also really hard to do. AMCs uh, ultimately need to be the validation engines, the impartial validation engines to figure out which of these things work and don't work in the same way they've done for drugs. And, and I feel like that's not a role that many have taken on yet. I think an AMC where providers are using algorithms as part of their everyday care is a bit of a lift given where we are today. There are going to be companies that are aggregators. There are going to be companies that are going to completely nail how to take very hard data across different institutions, clean up, and being able to give very, very high-quality diagnoses and prognoses. I think AMCs that partner with excellent groups to be able to incorporate this within their daily care in order to build a care delivery organization that is powered by such tools is probably going to be where the future is. Um, you know, I, I, we've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the real clinical data and, and uh, data from provider and healthcare systems and, and so on. But I'd like to turn it around a little bit, talk about the drug manufacturer. Um, what should we be doing to ensure that we are um, making the most of real world data? And I say this because, you know, the traditional way that we acquire this kind of data right now is through third parties, right? We, uh, we, we certainly uh, buy a lot of claims data and so on to really get a better understanding. And of course, now we're starting to be able to move towards, um, you know, federated data ecosystems. So we're able to, to, to pull multiple uh, sources and modalities of data together. Uh, we're also starting to see some players play in the space of like tokenizing data to, to, to match them uh, across multiple data sources. Um, but what can we be doing more to really start to engender the generation of real-world data. So look, in general, after a drug or device is approved by the FDA in the United States, we barely bother to see if it keeps working in our patients because it's in now post-marketing. We just use these drugs and we don't even bother to see do our patients benefit the same way they did in the trial. And so I think we as health systems have got to take on that responsibility. But it is still amazing to me that pharma biotechs and device manufacturers don't want to get more involved with real-world data. So you think about you know, the tech example, the tech analogy would be Apple, right? Apple probably tracks every single bug report that goes wrong uh, with a Mac or an iPhone, right? When the uh, automatic bug reports are filed. Why isn't that pharma companies don't care about every single failure of their drug in a patient, right? I mean, it's a new model to think about it, but I think pharma companies should know and start to study every single time their drugs don't work. 
right? It's equivalent of filing a bug report to get version 2.0 to, to be better. So I think it's going to need a mind shift in pharma, biotechs, and device manufacturers to really care about this data. But it's really their, their, it's their product experience. It's amazing they don't take it more seriously than, than they do. Yeah. If I could add something to what I told the set, I think that I draw an analogy to my experience building software for many years. You know, a decade ago, we were doing uh, user research studies and they took months. And then we got back these curated reports after many months about how the product was doing. And then over the last, I guess, probably 15, 10, 15 years, we moved to this real-time telemetry. And this telemetry pours in and you're constantly asking more questions. You're constantly learning new things and you're always just just learning, learning, learning faster and faster. And I think embracing that psychology that says, what can I be learning all the time about how my product's being used, in what way, with what outcomes, what's working, what's not working, in what situations. I think thinking about it as a digital feedback loop on your product, a tele you know, telemetry on your product in real time, I think it would be transformational, much like it's been transformational in software development and really every other industry that's now embracing these kind of digital feedback loops. To what extent is this also about incentives though? Like in, you know, when it comes to like pharma companies and wanting to track every bug report, isn't that something also that makes them liable historically? Um, and yeah, maybe you don't have to report bug reports to the FDA. Well, think it's, about it if you're, you know, I mean, Tesla is getting that real time feedback every day on what's working and not working in their cars. And so many other cars are not. And you do get the sense that these Teslas are continuously improving now at a much faster rate. And, you know, that's, a, that's an environment that has quite a bit of safety associated with it. Yeah, I am. Um, I'll just chime in here very quickly. I think, you know, Suchi's comments, I think my opinion as well, which is this idea that what is the incentive? You can't release a new version of a drug next year, right? So even if you found something, if you can't fix it, I feel like there's a little bit of the sort of head in the sand um, sort of philosophy when there's only downside and no upside. So um, I think that'll be different for, you know, digital therapeutics. It could be different for, you know, algorithmic based um, sort of solutions, um, computational diagnostics. And I think this is a, a big debate, even within the organizational structures of those companies. Do you set yourself up like a therapeutics company with the sort of design control, regulatory process, et cetera, a lot of which you'll need, or do you style yourself after a tech company and, and go for sort of continuous improvement? Well, I think these recent vaccines show that some vaccine providers produced in great digital feedback systems and others didn't. And those that did were able to respond to regulators quite quickly with all their questions and dispel any concerns. And those that had underinvested in the digital feedback loop, products had to come off the market, go back on the market, confusing data had to come in. Not to say all drugs and devices are like the most recent COVID vaccines, but that's, I think, a great case where some companies did a great job investing in this digital feedback loop and others did not. Well, I just want to thank everybody. This was really fun, really interesting. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you all. everyone. And I'll keep this going on Twitter if anyone uh, joins me there. <laughs>